Father, I pray that you would use me as a a vessel uh, to uh, speak your word, to help us all understand what you would desire in our lives and who we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to look like in our behaviors. Father, it's hard sometimes, and I pray that you would help us to keep the right perspective in Christ's name. Amen. With that in mind, I have been receiving quite a bit of feedback about our series in James. It usually goes like this. Pastor Mark, boy, did you step on my toes this morning. Uh, That has happened over and over in James. It's not uncommon for pastors who preach God's Word to hear that, but it seems as if I've been getting that quite a bit lately. And as I thought about that, I wanted to just pass on to you a couple of things. First, we must always keep in mind James is writing to those he loves. He is not writing to them to trash them, to make them feel inadequate. He loves them, and he knew that he would never see them again. And he knew that they were in dire circumstances. And I'm sure that he did want to comfort them and put his arms around them, but he knew there wasn't time or opportunity because he was sometimes hundreds of miles away. And so he wrote what they needed to hear. And one of the best things that any teacher or pastor or church leader can do is to give the truth when there's not time for other things. Put the truth out so that it can make its way into our hearts and our minds and alleviate some of the stresses that we have within our lives. He wrote to them something like this, you are followers of Jesus Christ. You know His gospel and you know He is in control of everything. You know I love you and care for you, but because of the situation, I need to write what you need to hear. Don't let the pressures of the world cause you to change the way you behave in the world. Now let me remind you, Christ followers, that there is a certain way to behave in this, certain, in this sinful world. Don't let your circumstances move you away from this behavior. We are Christ followers, and this is how we behave in the world no matter what. That's what James is telling us in his letter. This is how we behave. This is what God wants, and that's why we've said it a number of times. There are 60 commands, 60 imperatives in this five-chapter book, this letter. 60 commands that James says, this is what we need to do. This is what we need to do. This is what we need to look like. This is what God wants in your life. And we have to understand that he is setting out a pattern. These are not options. These are not, well, I'll grow into them someday. It's we're working on all of them at the same time. We are becoming somebody in Jesus Christ. And that is bringing us closer and closer to our Savior, Jesus Christ, being like Him. And that's what he is doing in the book of James. He is basically laying out behavior patterns that all those who follow Christ find themselves growing in. You see, he wants us to know. He wants us to understand over 2,000 years later that we are different than the world around us. And the only thing that really shows our difference is what? How we behave day in and day out. How we interact with the world around us. James wanted his flock to see the big picture. He wanted them to see that they must pay attention to how they interact with culture and to be aware that if their behavior didn't match what he was writing, they were drifting in their spiritual lives, or God was revealing to them that their faith may not have actually been genuine to begin with. And that's the flip side of this letter. His letter becomes a mirror that brings us assurance of salvation or identifies areas of behavior that need to mature, even, as I said before, may identify a faith that is not truly genuine. James is desperately trying to tell the people he loves, this is the pattern of your life. This is the pattern of your behavior. I believe it's become hard for many Christ followers to see these basic Christian behavior patterns laid out so clearly because we have forgotten that we are to be different and we don't like to be different in this world. 
we're going to stick out. Not because we dress differently, not because we carry big black Bibles around, not because we speak with these and thous, but because our lives are different day in, day out, in every area that we find ourselves living in. We're not like the world. We have been set apart from the rest of the world. We have different life mission than the rest of the world. We are to live in the world in such a way that we do not become like the world. And so many of us flirt with that. We straddle the line. We want to be different, but we also want to be the same. And James is making it so very clear, that's not going to happen. Peter sums this up very well for us. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. What does that immediately tell us? We don't belong here. We are citizens of the kingdom. We, this is temporary. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct, which is what? What is it? Behavior. Keep your behavior among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We are different. People need to look at us and say, there is something different about the life of that person as a Christ follower. And I think this is why I have had so many comments about toes being stepped on. Our study in James is bringing back to the forefront of our minds that this is what our behavior as Christ followers is supposed to be. This is what our behavior as Christ followers is supposed to be uh, maturing like in our lives. And I have opened like this this morning because I want to encourage you not to become discouraged and feel as if you are a complete failure as a Christ follower. How many of you may have had that into your mind as we've gone through James? Man, look at me. I hate what I see in the mirror, and it's not because of my physical appearance. It's just because I look at my spiritual appearance in there, and I don't like what I see. I must be a lousy, lousy Christian. I don't want you to feel like that. James doesn't want his dispersed flock to feel like that. Allow James to clear the fog from the path God has laid out for all of us to walk on as his people. Allow James to push and pull you back onto the path of proper behavior that sets you and I apart from the world. Allow James to even cause you to take a close look at your faith to see if it's really genuine. It's good to evaluate that. It's good to look at that. These are positive things that can come from studying the book of James. And when we do allow James to do this in our minds, in our hearts, then you will begin to see God use you in amazing ways that you never thought possible. It is then that your daily walk will be noticed by the world. It is then that the door uh, to give witness of God's saving grace in your life will open even wider. It is then that you will find it easier and easier not to be only a hearer of God's Word, but actually a doer every day of your life. With these things in mind, Let's go to God again to ask Him to help us keep a right perspective when we go into the book of James this morning. Father God, this book is hard. This letter from James is hard, especially in our day, because it lays out so clearly what we're supposed to look like as people who have been changed by faith in Jesus Christ. Father, it's easy to become discouraged. It's easy to be, have grief or to just want to walk away. But Father, help us not to do that. Help us to see that this is a great benefit, not only to our lives, but will bring you great glory and will spread the gospel of Jesus Christ throughout the world even better. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. As we have already said, as I've already said, James is helping us see there are basic patterns of behavior for all Christ followers who are genuinely saved. We see that Christ followers find themselves counting it all joy when they face the trials they will encounter in their lives because they know that God is growing them through the trials. 
Christ followers uh, find themselves asking God for wisdom to respond to those trials without doubting because He has promised to give them the wisdom they have asked for. We have Christ followers find themselves not blaming God for the temptations they struggle with because all temptations we found as we studied the verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, all temptations come from where? Within us. We cannot blame Satan. We cannot blame uh, the situation. We cannot blame our wives or our friends or our coworkers. Or our, uh, we can't. All the temptations that we find ourselves faced with come from within us because of our sinfulness. And I'd like to, us to take a look at verse 18 again. Verse 18 of James chapter 1. And I'm going to just read it to you really quickly. Of, of His own will, of God's own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be kind, a kind of first fruits of His creation. And what we find in that, this is a really, really important verse in all the book of James. I think all the book of James kind of revolves around this because it says he has birthed us again. He has drawn us to himself. He is the one who saved us. And because of this salvation, everything that follows is based on that salvation. Our behavior isn't based solely on how good or how disciplined you can make it happen. Because nobody can live all these commands out in a way that brings glory and honor to God without the Holy Spirit living within them. Can't happen. And so God has given us a new birth through His Word, and that has made us the first fruits, the down payment of everything He has promised to do in the future when Jesus Christ comes back. It is our new birth that causes us to begin to grow and behave differently. And we know this because of verse 19. Look at verse 19, James chapter 1. He says, know this, my beloved brothers, know this. Understand this new behavior will lead us to become not only hearers of God's word, but doers. This leads us to ask a question. He says, you know this, you know that you're supposed to be a hearer and a doer, and we all want to be hearers and doers. But the question that we have to ask this week is, what does a doer look like? Have you ever thought about that? We're supposed to be hearers of God's Word and doers of God's Word. What does a doer behave like? Could I stay up here for a long time and just list all these things that what a doer looks like? There, there's no way we can possibly go through all the Bible and search that out. But James picks out three. He picks out three examples, three consequences of this new birth. Remember, because you can't live without the new birth. Three consequences that he says helps us to stay on the path that James wants us to, to be able to recognize in our behavior when we're getting off that path, and even, if necessary, to evaluate, is my faith genuine? Let me read verses 26 through 27 of James chapter 1. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And what we see James laying before us are three behaviors that will begin to grow and show in all believers' lives. So what does it look like to be a doer? And what we find in this passage is a doer has a disciplined tongue, a compassionate heart, and a wholesome life. A disciplined tongue, a compassionate heart, and a wholesome life. These are not the only behaviors that will begin to grow in a new believer's life, but they are sufficient indicators that a true heart change has been experienced by a person who says, I am a Christ follower. One of the consequences of new birth as being a disciplined tongue, before we look at that, we need to look at what James means in verse 26 when he uses the word religion. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue... What does he mean by religion here? The word you, James uses here refers to those external religious rituals, liturgies, routines, and ceremonies that are not driven by a heart change by genuine faith in Jesus Christ. It's all the things we do, routines, ceremonies, coming to church. This is the type of religion that Justice spoke about a couple of weeks ago in Luke 18. But he said, the Pharisee standing by himself and remember, the parable here is that the Pharisee is being looked at 
as a person who has the religion that James is talking about. It's a false religion. It is a self-centered religion. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners and unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector who was standing next to him. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. He's listing all these things that I do. Look at all these behaviors I do. And what is the point of the parable that Justice told us about? It was all worthless. He went away unjustified before God. He did all this religious stuff, but he was unjustified. The Pharisees' religion was based on external religious rituals, routines, and ceremonies. And for us today, this type of religion can be expressed through things like attending church service and activities, doing ministry and volunteer work, following various rituals. What would those rituals be? Sunday services, Sunday school, home groups, Bible studies, Wednesday night services, and ceremonies like communion. All these things can be those types of rituals that James is talking about. These types of religious exercises we need to understand are futile, and they're as useless as a pagan idolatry. They're as useless as being in a pagan idolatry. You see, unless a heart has been changed by genuine faith in Jesus Christ, all these religious exercises mean nothing. They mean nothing. And this leads us to a question, how does a person know if they're practicing this kind of religion? And James gives us the answer. Look at the first part of 26 again. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religious, religion is worthless. What's the answer? How do, we, how do we know if we're practicing? And James picks, there's a number of things, but what does James pick? What one thing does he pick? The tongue the tongue. A corrupt heart will eventually be exposed by corrupt speech. A corrupt heart, a heart that is still sinful, not been changed by the blood of Jesus Christ, it will always show in corrupt speech. What do I mean by corrupt speech? And we need to not limit this definition to just foul language. It is so much more broad than that. Corrupt speech, listen to this. Corrupt speech would be any speech that does not honor God. Any speech that does not honor God. It could be lying, gossip, and slander. It could be speech that is self-centered, prideful, condescending. It could be outbursts of anger. It could be speech designed to build oneself up by slyly putting someone else down. We can go on with this list for a long time. It's not just cussing. It's any speech that would detract from the glory of God. Any speech that doesn't bring honor and glory to God is corrupt. And Paul sums this up so well in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Let no corrupting talk. How much corrupting talk? None. This is our behavior. This is the character of our lives in every aspect. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only, I love the Bible for this. It says, don't do this. Don't let this happen in your life, but it doesn't leave us hanging, does it? It always says, but don't do that, but do what? And he says, But only such, now measure your language last week against this. But only such as good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. That is the only type of speech that should come out of your mouth. Anything else that is not good for building up as fits the occasion that may may give grace to those who hear Anything else but that kind of speech is corrupt language, corrupt speech. Oh, that is, that's, that's like a, that's right here. For every single person sitting here, for myself. I, I was reading this and studying this, and I look back at my life, and I went, well, that, oh, 
there was another one. Oh, there was another one. Oh, there was another one. I didn't ask my wife. I didn't want all those added to my list. But that's the black and white behavior of it. Everyone who claims salvation will sooner or later, they will be exposing their true nature of their faith with their mouth. If you are truly saved, it will be shown in how you speak. I like how John MacArthur puts it. The tongue is not the only indicator of true spirituality, but it is one of the most reliable. Isaiah gets to the heart of this type of religion that James is talking about. In Isaiah 29, 13, we read this. This people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And you want to know what's follows this god says i'm going to take care of that you're going to be in some severe discipline because you speak one thing and your heart is totally different how many of us on a regular basis speak in a way that doesn't match what our heart is we, we go to church or we're christians we're christ followers but if you look at our everyday speech it, it our heart is revealed and it's not true if the tongue is not controlled by god it is a sure indicator that the heart is not either. And Jesus scolded the self-righteous Pharisees in Matthew chapter 12 on a, in a similar idea here. Matthew chapter 12, verses 34 and, and parts of 37. You brood of vipers. Okay, so how much is he calling them down here? You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. That is so clear. Our words will prove that we have been justified by Jesus Christ, or our words will prove that we are still condemned by our own sin. And remember, we're not just talking about filthy language here. Religion that does not transform the heart and thereby the tongue is totally worthless in God's sight. And sadly, many who practice this type of religion are completely deceived. If your speech does not match Jesus Christ, if your speech does not match godliness and holiness, he says you're deceived. There is no assurance whatsoever of your salvation. Let me draw your attention to the mirror. And before I get you to look in the mirror, I, I want to make a statement here for all of you perfectionistic control freaks. You are looking at this already. I, I know what's going through your heart. Oh, man, look how, look how terrible I am. I, I am th this just adds on to all those other things I don't do. Don't look for perfection when you look in the mirror on anything that we look at in James. Don't look for perfection because there is only one man who ever looked in that mirror and was perfect, and that's Jesus Christ. But a heart that is changed by faith in Jesus Christ will cause a person's speech and to become more and more like his Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's why we're looking here. Where am I at? You know, we, we've been through this already. We look in here and we see a smudge on our face or we see some dirt on our face or we see that for women, I almost said we see makeup for women, Okay, not us guys. We see that the makeup's not quite right. And, and do we just walk away and go, oh, I'm just lousy today? Or do you look at it and you go, whoop, that needs to be fixed. So you break out the whatever that stuff is that you use. And you start dressing it up. And, and that's all we're doing here. We're looking at it in the mirror and saying, oh, there's some imperfection and there's some imperfection and I, can, I need to get better in this area. Are we going to grow when we look at the mirror like this? Absolutely. But if we just walk away and forget, which we've already covered, what we've seen, we're not going to grow. And that's an indication that we really don't care. It is important for us to look in the mirror in light of what James is writing to see if your heart is being changed and if you are, your heart is being changed to where you have a more disciplined tongue. So let me help you out here. Evaluate your speech in this way. Just ask some of these questions. Does the general character of my speech match what Paul writes here again in Ephesians 4.29? Does the general character of my speech match that? 
Now, none of us, again, will live this perfectly. And has God provided a way for us to confess our sins and be forgiven for that when we don't? Yeah, amen. God is not there to just use the two-by-four on our heads. He's given us a way to get right and get back on the path through 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. But that's the standard. That's the bar. And you cannot make excuses and lower the bar because it makes it easier for you because who sets the bar? God does. And you have no right to lower God's bar. And we try to all the time. Ask yourself this. Not only does does my speech in a general way match Ephesians 4.29, but is my heart grieved when my my speech doesn't give grace to those who hear it? Is my heart grieved? Not because I hurt a person or not because somebody got mad at me for it, but is my heart grieved to where no matter... Let's say somebody... There's an argument between the two of you, and you are absolutely 100% right. Let's just say that. You, me, explode. I get really angry. If I can walk away from that situation, even though they were wrong and I'm right, even though I may have backed them into a corner and won the argument, if I can walk away from that situation and not be grieved deep down in that I just brought dishonor to God and I did not match that bar? It doesn't make any difference what happens. My grief will make me do what? Turn back to that person who was absolutely wrong, who has approached me in the wrong way, and I will look at them with all sincerity and say, please forgive me for my speech towards you. It's not saying that we were wrong. It's not admitting that we were wrong, but it's admitting that we approached this and we spoke in a way that was not God-glorifying If you can walk away from situations like that, if you can walk away and not be grieved because your speech has been wrong in whatever area that is, there's a problem. So how do we evaluate our speech? Does the general character of my speech match what Paul writes here in Ephesians 4.29? Is my heart grieved when when my speech does not give grace to those who hear it? And which something that I've already mentioned. Am I quick to confess the sin of my speech and seek to apologize to whom I sinned against with my speech. And it doesn't make any difference if I'm wrong or right. It does not make any difference whatsoever. It means that I know I sinned against God and that is not meeting the standard for a Christ follower. And now James moves to the second consequence, the the second behavior that is a consequence because of our new birth in verse 27. Look at verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before, the, before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. And so what we find here is the second consequence of the new birth is a compassionate heart. I have speech that is biblical and meets, uh, is growing to meet that standard of Christ-likeness, but I also have a compassionate heart. And James, we're just going to paraphrase here, James is saying, religion that is accepted by God is one that that is demonstrated by a heart that is compassionate for widows and orphans like our Heavenly Father. In Psalm chapter 68, we read this, sing to God, sing praises to His name. Lift up a song to Him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exalt before Him, Father of the fatherless and protector of the widows, is God in His holy habitation. Who protects the fatherless? Who protects the widows? Our Father. And if we are becoming more like our Father, becoming more like Jesus Christ, what will we have a heart that drives us to do? The exact same thing. I don't believe that James is only thinking about the compassion towards orphans and widows here. He is speaking in the first century. In the first century, who were the most destitute in the culture? Orphans and widows. There was no social security net. There was no Medicare. There was nothing. If you lost your husband as a wife, you couldn't get a job. There was nobody to take care of you. The state wouldn't take care of you. There's no welfare. If you were an orphan, it was even worse. 
You were street rats. Uncared for by anybody. Get out of my way. And I believe that he is using the orphans and widows as examples of the most poor and needy in one's culture. And what James is saying here is that genuine faith always leads a heart to grow in compassion for the needy. A Christ follower always finds their hearts drawn to them who are in need. Pure religion, undefiled religion, religion that is accepted by God because of a heart changed by faith in Jesus Christ is naturally drawn to care for the needy. It's a natural thing. I am growing. When I see somebody in need, my natural first instinct is to do what? I want to help. I will sacrifice what I have to to help. That's my normal, natural thing. Doesn't mean that we always can, doesn't mean that we always should, but what is my natural default position when I see a need? I want to help. Jesus himself condemns the fake religion of the scribes shown by their abuse of widows in really strong language. Look at Mark chapter 12, starting at verse 38. Beware of the scribes. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes like greetings and like greetings in the marketplace and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. And what, ha- what are they doing? Who devour widows' houses. He says, beware of the people who have no desire to care for the needy and actually abuse them and take advantage of them. Jesus also reveals that a compassionate heart is going to be considered at the judgment. Turn, please, to Matthew chapter 25, starting in verse 31. Matthew chapter 25. This is Jesus Christ speaking. He's talking about the final judgment. How many of us are going to experience some kind of final judgment? Everybody here. Are Christ followers going to experience some kind of final judgment? Yes. Is It's going to be different than those who do not believe. But are those who are unbelievers, are they going to experience some kind of final judgment? Everybody is going to be at some type of final judgment. And listen to what Jesus Christ says here, starting in verse 31. And we're going to read all the way to verse 46. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king, which is Jesus Christ, will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of these least of my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food, and I was thirsty and you gave me no drink, and I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not to, uh, do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into what? Eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Please do not miss what Jesus is saying in these verses. He is saying, inasmuch as you read the Bible and pray with an elderly lady who can't make it to church, or sit by the cancer-stricken mother who lays incoherent in her bed, or help the homeless man sitting along the road, you did it in Christ's name. It's the same as Jesus Christ ministering. 
You are a minister of Christ when we do those things. That's what a compassionate heart does. And if we don't care to do those things, if, the, if we're not driven by that type of thing, we need to look in the mirror. There's another wonderful passage that helps us grasp the impact of this compassionate heart. Turn to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. I'm not going to read the whole story here. Starting in verse 11, this passage will help us grasp the impact of a compassionate heart. Read a couple of verses from verse 11. Soon afterward, he, Jesus Christ, went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as they drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died had been, was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had what? on her and he said do not weep and you know what he does he raises that son that only son back to life so his mother could have him and he could have his mother but that shows a compassionate heart but look at the impact look at the impact so the dead man sits up and look at verse 16 fear sees them all and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited His people. A great prophet has been here, and God visited. That word visit there, that word visit, and you see it more in the King James than you do in the ESV or some of the others, that word visit is not visit like I'm necessarily going to the door and knocking. That word visit means to care for. To go and to care for. That's the idea when they saw the impact of this, that Jesus' compassion had on this widow, knowing that God is the father of the fatherless and has peculiar concerns for the widow, the people say, God showed up. God did something wonderful here. Anytime we have a compassionate heart like Jesus Christ, anytime that compassion overflows in our lives, people around look at us and say, God showed up. They look at us and say, God showed up. Look at, what, look at what this person did. Did that man who died, did Jesus owe him anything? Did he deserve to be raised from the dead? It was only out of the compassion of his heart because Jesus cared for his mother who was a widow. What happens to widows in that culture? Destitute. And out of the compassion of his heart, he says, I will help where I can. I will give her back her son who will be able to provide for her. And the whole town said, God showed up. When's the last time God showed up because of some compassion you had? Born out of the, out of the, the consequence of a new birth, not because you're just a tender heart, but because you were moved by the Holy Spirit and you couldn't let it go. When people of God, out of a heart of compassion, do what the Bible says in relationships to the needs of humanity, to the needs of our culture, then in a graphic way, men and women may stand back and say, God has showed up. Our hearts of compassion that leads us to show compassion witnesses to the world that the compassion of Jesus Christ himself is alive and it's well in each of us, and it opens the door for us to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Just doing compassionate ministry, having cares for people, if it is not accompanied by the gospel, it is not accompanied by pointing them to Jesus Christ, it really doesn't mean a whole lot. We need to work as hard as we can. As we are working and showing compassion, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is present in every instance that we can make it happen. Let me draw your attention again to the mirror this morning by asking this question. Are you growing in your compassion for the needy? Remember, James is showing us the three consequences of God's work within our hearts because of the new birth that he caused. Every Christ follower will experience this consequence. Every Christ follower will be growing and maturing in their compassion for the needy. For some, this will be easy growth. Personality, giftedness. And for others, it will be slow and arduous and a fight. But for all of us, there will be some growth. 
To help you evaluate what you see in the mirror, let me suggest that you think on two things that can get in the way of your growing in your compassion for the needy. A critical heart will stunt your ability to grow in your compassion. A critical heart will stunt your ability to grow in your compassion. If this hits home, then the place to go is to go to the Lord in prayer. Ask for forgiveness and ask that He would help you see why you have become so critical. It could be past life, past life experiences that have impacted you. It could be bitterness that's deep down. It could be all kinds of reasons. But if you become a critical person, you will never become a compassionate person. It's not going to happen. Because you will always make them, the people who need the compassion, you will always make them measure up to a standard you have before you're compassionate. Another way, another thing that will hinder your ability to grow in your compassion for the needy is a self-centered heart. A self-centered heart. If this hits home, then repeat what we just said. Go to God. Confess it. It's okay. He will forgive you. And then review what God's Word says about being a living sacrifice. The only way to not be self-centered and to make life focus around you and what you want and what you need and to be safe in this life is for you to become a living sacrifice to say, I don't own anything. Jesus Christ does. My life begins to Him. I have become a living sacrifice. What He wants, I want. What He dictates is what I want to happen in my life. Amen? You cannot be a living sacrifice when you have a self-centered heart. Again, remember the selfless love that saved you. How many of you deserve to be saved by Jesus Christ? How many of you experienced His love and compassion from the day that you took a breath and He brought you to salvation to where you sit right now this morning? What right do we have to put our focus, our self-centeredness, our critical spirits as a measuring stick before we let God's compassion that he's had for us, show to other people. James moves on to the third consequence of a Christ follower's new birth. In verse 27, the last part of it, look at verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. You know what he's saying? The third consequence of being born again, the third consequence uh, of life that we're going to look in the mirror of is, do I have a wholesome life? Not as defined by the world, not as defined by me saying, I'm doing okay, but as defined by God. Who gets to judge in the final judgment whether you live a wholesome life or not? Not you. Not you. Religion that God accepts as pure and undefiled not only involves our disciplined tongues and our compassion for those who are desperately in need, it also demands we keep ourselves from being polluted by the world. This is a command. Keep yourselves pure. Keep your lives wholesome before God. To be practical, helpful believers, we need to also make sure that while we are living in this world and serving the needy and being part of this world that we don't become unholy in this world because we are stained by the world. We are to be what? In this world, but not of it. And this is hard to look in the mirror. How much has the world influenced you? How much of the world is, is in your hearts and in your minds and, and makes you give excuses and gives reasons for why you are like you are? Or do you just say, no, this is what God wants. This is what God says I'm supposed to be as holy and pure before Him. And therefore, no matter what my heart says, I am a living sacrifice and I give all that up for Him because He is my Lord and Savior. We could be here a long time looking at what God's Word says about our new birth that leads to a pure and wholesome life. But we're going to look at 1 Peter. Again, this one was pretty long. So if you turn over to 1 Peter chapter 4, 
Listen to what Peter says about this wholesome life. Since, therefore, Christ suffered in the flesh, what does that mean? Since He died for you, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, that whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time, the rest of your life, in the flesh no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Everything we've been talking about already. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account for him, uh, give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For he, they will give an account. When we live holy and pure lives that stand out as, as a, uh, a relief against the, what the world is, he says they will malign you. They will notice, but it's who we are because of our new birth. We're holy and pure. Peter is pointing out you are no longer what you once were. And here's a theme that we've been talking about all morning. You are radically different. Is your life radically different than the rest of the world? You live in a world opposed to the lordship of Jesus, and when you serve those in need, and when you work at your job, and when you join a team, you must not go back to acting like the person you were before you were saved. If you're going to get down and dirty in the culture, if you're going to invest yourself in that way, if you're going to make yourself vulnerable, if you're going to open yourself up so much that, they're, that you need to control your tongue, you need to be holy. Everything that we've been talking about this morning, that's part of being holy. Be very, very careful, says James, that out of a genuine desire to, uh, from a compassionate heart to be helpful in the needs of others, that it doesn't become a smokescreen for our own immorality. Sometimes we'd say, look at all the good things I'm doing. Look at how I, all the things that I do and all the people I help. But we use that as a smokescreen because we know inside what our lives are really like. We know inside what is important to us. And we know inside that our lives are not pure and holy before God. The world is ruled by Satan. It is opposed in spirit and in attitude to the things of God. And I, we need to understand there's a clear line between the two. There is no gray. And we'll talk some more about this holy life in chapter 4. But I want you to see one first that is coming up in the future. Here's what James says. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. How clear is that? If you want to be a friend to this world, if you want to fit in, if you want them to like you, God says it ain't going to happen because you're a light of Jesus Christ and your speech is different. Your compassion is different. Your life as holy and pure before God is different. There should be no mistake that you're different from everybody else that walks around you. How many of you are that different that people look at you and know there is something really, really, really different in your life on a daily basis? Take a look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, waiting for the things to come, be diligent to be found by Him without spot or blemish and at peace. When you look in the mirror now about your pure life and about your holy life, and, and how many spots and blemishes do you have right now if you were to look in this mirror right now? Just being honest. You know, it doesn't do any good. Remember we talk about deception? A religion that is not like what James is, it's, you're deceiving yourself. It's really, really stupid to see the blemishes and turn around and walk away and not do anything about them. As with a disciplined tongue, 
don't look for perfection. When you look in the mirror at this life of purity, because who is the only one who's ever lived it? Jesus Christ. But James is being very, very clear here. Your life will become more and more wholesome, more and more pure. As you examine in the mirror, you read the Word of God, the Holy Spirit moves you. Your life must move towards purity and wholesomeness, never to the level of Christ. That's just not going to happen. But you're going to see less and less blemishes. But you want to know what we like to do, especially in this area of our lives? Ladies, I'm going to pick on you. I'm not trying to be mean, but you're the only ones that wear makeup. All right? You have a blemish, and you can't get rid of it. What do you do? Cover it up. Sometimes it takes two, three, four, and five layers. And if it doesn't look like you, right, you do what? You take it off and do what? Try something else. Go to Walmart and look at that big long aisle that has all those cover blemish things. You see, we like to do that in our holy and pure lives. We like to look in here, identify a blemish, and then do what? Cover it up. We'll go to great lengths to cover it up instead of getting where God wants us to be and getting rid of it or making it smaller. We want to cover it up. We don't like what we see, but we also don't want to change how we live. We don't want to let those things in our lives that make us impure and unholy and unwholesome out of our lives. So we're just going to cover it up so we can go outside and be what? Look really good for the world. The problem with that is you can't cover up anything from God. He looks at your heart. He knows exactly what blemishes are there, and no amount of covering up is going to get rid of it. It is only through the Holy Spirit, confession, being in the Word, being in church, all the things that we've been looking at, that's the only way to start reducing that blemish. But ask yourself this when you evaluate, does the general character of my life match what God's Word says? 1 Peter 1, verses 15 and 16. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. I'm going to reread that. But he, as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your behavior. Be holy in how much of your behavior? And when I notice a blemish, what do I do? Correct it. And he says, what's the reason for that? You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if we have God living in us in the person of the Holy Spirit, what must we become more holy? We can't help it. So what in your life needs to be removed to move you closer to the holiness of your Savior? Honestly. As soon as I asked that, I would venture to say that every person here had at least one thing come to their minds. And some of you are still going through the list. What in your life needs to be removed to move you closer to the holiness of your Savior? Don't limit it this to pornography and foul language. How do we look at this? I'm going to give you a really easy answer. Idols in our lives keep us from being holy and separated unto God. Idols in our lives keep us from being holy and separated unto the Lord. You say, well, what's an idol? Anything that sits on the throne of our lives in place of Jesus Christ. Anything that sits on the throne of our lives in place of Jesus Christ. If there's anything in your life you will not give up because it has been, you've looked in the mirror and you know it's not, it's not where you want to be, I'll, I'll, I'll cover it up, I'll make excuses for it. If there's something that you will not remove in your life or allow God to remove in your life, that has become your idol. That could be a relationship, that could be kids, your children, hobbies, status, self. There's so many things that can become idols in our lives. Does Jesus Christ really sit on the throne of your life, honestly? Really? Because that is the only way that you're going to become more and more holy. 
And any time that you look in the mirror and see a blemish and see that you've scooted Jesus Christ off a little bit or you've actually placed yourself on the throne, that is where you need to get up, remove the blemish and say, Lord God, I need you back on the throne. I am sorry, please forgive me. And I need to walk better in this. And then we go to the Word of God and we find out what does the Word of God have to say about this idol? We bring people, accountability partners into our lives and we say, hey, if you see me going down this path, you need to kick me in the rear and get me back on the path because I don't want this unholiness in my life. Help me to stay holy and pure. Who in your life will you really listen to? Who can look at you and say, hey, you're walking down a path you shouldn't be. We don't like that as Christ followers today. We will avoid that kind of talk, no matter the cost. I cannot tell you how many times that people have walked away from me or other pastors or other leaders in the church because we look at them and say, let us help you. And they say, absolutely not. I am not going to change. And they walk away and they want nothing more to do with us. I can't tell you how many times that's happened. We have pastors meetings and pastors groups. It's a common theme. Every time I try to really get in somebody's life and try to hold them accountable and love them through this like James is loving, they walk away from me because they don't want their faces in front of my face when I bring them to the Word of God. And it breaks their hearts. Who in your life? It doesn't have to be a pastor, but it needs to be somebody who is a mature Christ follower can look at you and say, I need to talk. These three consequences of our new birth, a disciplined tongue, a compassionate heart, a wholesome life, gives us distinct tools by which we can measure our growth and look in the mirror and say, where are we at? Don't become discouraged and feel as if you're a complete failure in Christ. If you need to mature in these behaviors, don't, again, we've talked about that, don't go there. As I said before, look in the mirror, Allow James to clear the fog from the path that God has laid out for us to walk as his people. Allow James to push and pull you back into the proper path of behavior that sets you apart from the world. Allow James to even cause you to take a close look at your faith to see if it's really genuine. Look in the mirror, honestly, vulnerably. And when you do, and you start allowing God to work in your life, then you will see God really begin to use you, as I said before. It is when you look in the mirror and do something about it and work with God and work with others, it is then that your daily walk will be noticed by the world. It is then that the door to give witness to God's saving grace in your life will be open more often. It is then that you will find it easier and easier to not only be hearers of the word, but doers. Because these three things that we looked at today is part of being a doer of God's word. Lord God, we all come to you this morning. Every single person here with blemishes in our lives our speech is not where it should be we are more interested in ourselves than the people who are needy and our lives are not pure and wholesome before you Lord God we come to you as a congregation we come to you as your people and we confess these sins to you and we father ask that you would forgive us and father we ask that you would not allow the holy spirit in our hearts and our minds just to forget about what we're feeling and what we're thinking about right now when we walk out the door father keep it on our minds keep us on our hearts Oh, Lord God, we ask that you help us in our weakness. Don't allow us just to forget. And Father, we ask that as we grow and mature as a church body and as individuals, that Lord God, Swansea and Gasson and North and other surrounding areas would see the light of Sardis Baptist Church, not because we're such a terrific organization that sits on Route 6, but because we have individuals who are growing and showing the light of Jesus Christ and sharing our lives with the needy and being, having pure lives that draw people to you. Oh, Lord, please 
I ask that you would let nobody walk out of here this morning and just forget what they've heard. In Christ's name, amen. If God has brought something to your attention this morning and you just want to pray about it, or you want to talk about it, or you have other questions, I'll be up here after the service this morning. Come and see me.